I'm not putting the hat back on for sartorial elegance. I've just got, I've got hat hair. I am racing later. And when I say racing, I mean being overtaken by juniors. Actually, Pete, just keep, just keep clicking out because the longer you stay, the less likely it is that I, that I have to race. At, at, um, when is your race, Aaron? It's Tyne United are, are doing Tyne Head. Now, at the minute, there's about 48 Tyne Heads that happen between September and, and, and March. Rutherford is the one that, that we remember because it was, you know, back in the glory days yeah. when we actually rode semi-decently. But it's the first time that the eight has been out since last August. And I'm just going to say, Pete, you are a, you know, a, a, a garlanded coach. You know the eights take years and years and years to blend. So this yeah. will be our second outing since last August. We're going to go down the river like a hippopotamus wallowing in a bog. Or it'll be a steep learning curve and you'll be nailing it by the end of it. Well, we have about six kilometres to try and get it right. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure that we have the fitness for six kilometres of trying to get it right. But there you go. <laughs> Shall we just dive in there? I'm, sh sh go for it, man. Uh, do you want to do the intro? Shall I do the intro? I don't know what to say about this man, um, to be honest. You know, if if Kev Maynard gave me the, the fundamentals and Dennis got me fit, then the man we're about to talk to actually taught how to how to row a blade, how to how to feel how a boat is moving. And I could I could I think the kids call him big upping someone. But we could we could deep dive into Pete, we could ask him for a, a history of Pete, or we could just say, Pete, what is the perfect rowing stroke? And then just let him talk about it for an hour and a half. And that should basically be a pretty informative podcast. I think that would work. So, Pete, if you want to tell yeah. us a little bit about yourself and sure. your history in the sport, sure. go for it. Otherwise, yeah. just tell us about rowing. Okay. Um, yeah, a little bit. In fact, uh, the, the one can seg into the other quite nicely, I think, because, you know, how I came to my views and understanding of rowing to do with, you know, how it all started, as for most of us, I think. I began rowing at uh, Latimer in London, um, you know, two years of rugby, and then we started rowing again. There was no rowing history in the family. It's just one of the things I fancied doing. I can't remember why. Uh, my brother had gone to the school earlier, which is why I went. And then Andy, my younger brother, came in the year following, and he also joined uh, joined the boat club, perhaps because I was in it, I don't know. Anyway, uh, moderate success, J16 level. We won a few regattas and things like that. And then I went to uh, Queen's Cambridge, where I also rowed. Tried to get in the blue boat and failed miserably. <laughs> uh, just wasn't fitting already enough for it. Uh, but had some some success at Queen's. Um, and then I started teaching and I went to rowing schools, probably because of the rowing connection. I love rowing so much, you know, doing it. I'd done some coaching already. Uh, and I went to uh, I went to three uh, rowing schools, Radley and St Paul's and Eton. Uh, and, each, and in each I coached crews. Uh, probably the best success I had was at St Paul's as a coach where we won at the National Schools Regatta once with a lovely crew, I still remember very fondly. Uh, and all that time, I was sort of, as it were, learning the game, learning the ropes, learning how to coach. It takes time. There's no substitute for experience. And I was learning stuff uh, from the coaches I was working with, a couple of guys at Radley, particularly Ronnie Howard and Jock Mullard, whom I dedicated our rowing manual to, uh, just taught me an awful lot about the stuff, the, you know, the business. Uh, but also, all the while this was going on, Andy was in the National Squad, getting into the National Squad, uh, he started rowing properly at uh, Leander. He won the Thames Cup with the, in the Leander age, stroke by Pritchard, I think it was. Uh, then he went to Kingston and won the Brit. I uh, can't remember who was coaching that, but uh, learning stuff. And, and, of course, all this time, he and I were chatting. So I'd ask him, well, how's it going, Andy? What are you doing at the club? What sort of uh, technical ideas are you using? Can I use them in my own school coaching? Things like that, you know, and we talk rowing all the time. Um 
And then he got into the squad. It was led by Penny Shooter at the time. Uh, and he was coached what she called reach technique. I think I've mentioned this to Aaron before now. Have you heard that term, by the way, reach technique? I have heard really of that term, reach technique. But... Oh, right. Okay, yeah. It was an idea, I think it was gleaned mainly from the East Germans, the East German prominence. I should just rewind a bit and say that at Latimer, Andy and I were coached by Jim Clark, who was in Yanisek's silver medal eight, the Montreal eight. Mm-hmm. So, and he really inspired Andy to try and, you know, Go go big! Uh, it didn't quite rub off on me enough, but uh, anyway. So we had Janasek through from Jim Clark, and then we got uh, then Andy started getting the reach technique. I can remember as a young, as a school rowing coach, Radley or St Paul's, going to meetings where Penny Shooter talked about reach technique, and in fact she referred to the Italians an awful lot, particularly the Avignales. Uh, you may remember um, their style of rowing, which is very hunched over. You sort of re- reach right out forward with the arms, with your sort of head hunched down like that. Uh, and it worked for the Avignales, you know, so as usual, we look at these things and say, oh, that's how you move a boat, you know, by doing that with your body. You know, it's yeah. just a ridiculous, ridiculous way of thinking. Um, so anyway, reach technique was the fashion, East Germans dominant. Of course, they won because they took drugs and trained ridiculously. That's why they beat everyone. <laughs> yeah. That's why they won. It wasn't the way they were rowing. But anyway, it became fashionable. Uh, and then Andy was in the squad in this mix, getting in crews, occasionally winning, you know, moderately successfully. But then he came across Mike Spracklin, uh, who had been, who was, who was mentoring Steve Redgrave. You know, the, the, the Spracklin Redgrave partnership was a well known thing, it had been going on for a long time. Um, and, and they were, and Penny was, to, to credit Penny, uh, Andy was greatly admired Penny. We thought she was a great coach and a great organiser. And she was the foundation, as it were, of the success that we've had since then. Anyway, uh, she was mixing up crews and coaches and putting combinations together and seeing what worked. And Andy got into a pair. I think it was with Paul Wensley, but I'm not sure. Uh, uh, this is a long time ago now, and these facts become blurred with me. But anyway, it got into a pair in some kind of group uh, session, and Spratland got hold of them. Uh, and uh, it took Andy for an outing. And I, I can remember vividly having this conversation with Andy after because he almost got on the phone and rang me and said, Pete, this was just fantastic. I, uh, he did explain to me at the time what it is roughly that, what, you know, he, he, I said, well, what did, what did Spratland do? What was so amazing about this outing? Uh, and, he, and, he, and he put it, he said it, he couldn't believe how simple it was. Spratland just said, okay, what moves a boat is pressure against the pit. All right. There's yeah. nothing else that moves a boat apart from pressure against the pin. So why not try and produce a, pro, uh, a stroke that produces the maximum pressure against the pin that you can produce from catch to finish? All right. Just assume. Let's just say there's an argument for you. Okay. Let's just take that as a starting point. Right now, try a bit of rowing now. Low rating, uh, massively high pressure. So build up to it. It'll be quite low rating. And all I want you to do is to sit up with your back straight, obviously rocked over a little bit, your arms out straight, hang on to the oar for grim death, and just smash your legs down as hard as you possibly can. Okay? Now, obviously, these are skillful oarsmen, so they had the blade control to start with. And when you do it with beginners and starters, and maybe when I did it with you guys, I can't remember, when you first try it, it's a fucking mess. Because, no, uh, we, we got it straight no, away, no, we, no, yeah. we got it straight away. Honestly, when when you told me to do that, it was just like this is this is what I've just been trying to do. It's just like (laughs) none of this nonsense. Just like reach out for like, just like try and get the blade parallel to the boat. It's just like come forward, 
put the blade in, smash it, smash it. Excellent. <laughs> this is good. And, and I've done, and I like, and I and uh, Andy said that at the end of it, they, they Andy just you know looked round. I think it was, it was at Paul. I think Andy was at Bowen and Paul's at stroke, and, and they just they said, "What? What the hell was that? You know, what happened? What just happened?" Um, and, and my my and the way Andy explained it was that it cut out all the nonsense, it just cut all the nonsense, and you just rode the hardest stroke you possibly could. Now that's that's the beginning of it, and what it does is it gives you a feeling of power which you never experience if all you're doing is thinking about length and you know and, and body angles and things like that. You just you just don't feel what it is like to row a blade as hard as you possibly can. It's only the beginning because there's a huge amount of smoothing out and, and control and things you have to learn having done that yeah. but um perhaps you'd agree as you say uh, I, and i've done it with crews ever since um school crews and club crews i've coached and obviously i tried it out with you guys at agecroft yeah uh, and i was also working at uh, manchester university at the time as well and uh, it, the, the effect it was just astonishing every time it happened people said my god they just looked at me and said my god <laughs> is that what it can feel like <laughs> Um, so yeah, there we are. Uh, okay, I I I got into rowing through rowing machines. For whatever reason, I sat down on a rowing machine in the gym. And I thought, oh, this is fun. Yeah. And the rowing machine fundamentally rewards that approach. It's just like you come to the front, slam it, get to the back, yank it, and then you know repeat as many times as possible before you fall over. Why was it that people were not thinking, you know, look, let's break it down to brass tacks here. Mm. The only thing that is going to move that boat is how much shove you are putting into the shell through the pin. Why did we get so much kind of esoteric mysticism in there? I think, yeah. Um, I mean, I've, have you got some thoughts on that era? Because I have, if you have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I came to rowing via the Redgrave four in right. uh, Sydney. I, I thought they were so single-minded in their focus. And so it genuinely intrigued me. And I went down to Agecroft and, you know, Kev taught me the fundamentals. Um, Dennis got me fit, but it was always what length is enough length? Well, more, you need to get more, you need to get more length. You need to get more and more length. You were the first person who actually, and it wasn't just me. You didn't take me to one side and, and go, Aaron, we need to talk, we need to talk about boat physics. You got all of us in that squad together. You got the whiteboard out and you, 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 you drew all of the arcs and the angles and you explained about it. Basically your blade is your fixed point in, in the water. It's not, it's moving, it's moving in at least two different planes at once, oh, but it feels like a fixed point. Yeah. And what matters is the pressure that you using that fixed point, the pressure against the pin is what levers the boat forward. And like Lewin said, it was something of a revelation. You hear all of these coaching, what Lewin calls mood music, and you you kind of go, oh yeah, so well, you need to work on timing and we need to work on length. And, we need... and actually it's like, no, just put the blade in the water, smack it as hard as you can, as hard as you can, repeat. Let it run, yeah. What is something essentially very simple? And to give Dennis his due, he always said, rowing is simple. Put it in, row hard, take it out, repeat. It's... And even now, when I've come back to rowing at Tyne, there's a lot thrown around about, you know, progressive loading and placing and pushing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, no, put it in, hit it as hard as you can, ride the float forward for the Let next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, and I remember certainly with you, you guys, uh, to start with, there was a kind of, 
I don't know if it was disbelief, but then, but uh, things didn't go too well to start with until finally I remember the I think I can remember the outing when you cracked it. I mm. think we were out with the other eight or something, and uh, and they couldn't they, they just couldn't catch you. No, yeah, uh, <laughs> we all remember that. <laughs> you remember that? Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I can remember um, what the hell is going on. You know, I think that was a, quite a turning point. That one. Um, anyway, yeah. To go back to this business of length. I've got several thoughts about this, and it, and it might be quite straightforward. I might be wrong, but the point is this. In most clubs, you jump in and out of eights. Crews get scratched. They're put together. People change all the time. So you've got to have standardized equipment. You've got to have standardized. And I think Drew Jin was saying this in his as well, which means that what happens is a philosophy develops, which is you've got to row in this certain way to fit this rig. Mm. Um, so, for example, um, if you've got small people, rowing in, say, 80, on 84 uh, TD uh, spread in an 8, okay? And if they're small people, in order to row a half-decent catch angle, they've got to reach massively. They've got to. Because, yeah. you know, if you, it, you're just not going to get it if you don't, okay? So, the, and so therefore, and that's why this way of thinking develops. You know, you've got oars of a certain length. You've got buttons, which we're not going to bother to move because it wastes time moving buttons. So we've got an inboard arc, which we've got to reach in order to obtain a decent outside out, outboard angle. Therefore, adjust your body to suit this kind of arc, this kind of stroke. Okay, and it's completely mm. the wrong way round. Yeah. So, what we should be doing is looking at the body and saying, or, or, or looking at this way round. We've got to achieve a certain outboard arc. We've got to achieve a catch angle at forty-five degrees. If we can make it, and even that's unusual to be honest with a grip. But you've got to a grip at forty-five degrees in front of the orthogonal, and you've got to release it about 30, 35 behind. Okay, so we then say, well, there's the arc, the arc we need. But then we've got a fixed pin, so we've got to have a, and we've got to have a fixed inboard arc. But we, what we, what we don't do is say, no, let's move the pin in order to increase the outboard arc, so that the, the arc you row inboard can be nice and comfortable. Mm. Yeah. In other words, and I, as I remember, I heard Martin Cross do a commentary on one of the Henry regattas, and I think it was the German eight, that were, and, and, and the buzz went round this room. Oh, my God, the German eight is on 82. I, I, th I think I'm remembering that, right, or 82.5, which is incredibly cramped for an, mm. eight, for an eight, okay? But what they decided was, we want this big outboard arc, okay, and we've got extremely powerful blokes, all right, and we don't, that's it, who can virtually sit upright, like uh, like uh, Steve Redgrave used to sit virtually bolts upright and still and row this really powerful stroke. So we'll just bring the pins in. Mm. That increases the outboard arc. So yeah. if you move the pin, you can now adjust the and that's what you <coughs> do. Does that way of thinking make sense to you? Yeah. So, I mean, sorry, Lou. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to dive in because yeah. this is this is something that I've been thinking about. Is like the next big place that sort of like rowing training can can go and like where we're going to get that extra sort of universal 1% speed right is the idea of personalizing both the boat and the training to the rower yeah um and so if you kind of look at a rowing boat the only thing you can easily really move is the feet yeah and so you can slide the guy backwards and forwards but if they're big you know, if they're tall, they've got long legs. Realistically, you can't. You, you've got, like, two inches to play with. Yeah, yeah. But if you compare that to how easily and how much adjustment there is on, let's say, a bicycle, 
Right. Where you can slide the saddle up, you can change the handlebars, you can change the angle of the handlebars. If you if you get the spanner out, you can change the cranks. You've got all these options. Yeah. And we're very similar about this in in training, in, in physiological training. Yeah. We basically say we know what works for everyone. And you sit on the rowing machine and you do your long, slow distance at this percentage of your maximum heart rate. And then you're going to do, you know, you, you form the pyramid, whatever, whether it's pyramid or whether it's a, um, a polarized point, point of view, that's what you do. Cool. But we don't, I don't think, and I'm not, I'm not aware of what happens at the top end, but certainly even towards the very top end of club rowing, we don't sit there and say, what is going to benefit this at athlete the most? What is going to let this athlete be the strongest and most, um, the strongest and fittest that they can be? What is going to make this athlete move the boat through their personal arc? Yeah. Um, the fastest. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I, th I think to be honest, that was like why I was so interested in like what, even though I was only there for a little while, what you were saying about the boat was just like, this is just fascinating. Yeah. I, I agree with a lot of what you say. I think that the idea is, and, and, and you're right, this is going to be the future. I think, I think it's starting already to be honest, but, um, I can remember, one of the things that we, Andy and I wrote in our rowing manual, um, once you get the crew set, you have to standardize things to start with because you can't keep adjusting things all the time. So you have to have a sort of basic starting point. But then as soon as you get the crew settled, you, you can then, and you should, customize. Mm. Customize. So yeah. if, if you've got someone who is very much smaller, you've got a crew, because sometimes crews are hugely different in height, different wingspans and so yeah, on. We, we and expecting that. them to row on the same rig is just ridiculous in, in the same boat, right? So a very small person, say, in the bows could have a tighter TD and slightly shorter outboard. Whatever it is that she's now, in fact, I'd like to hear what you guys think about this. It seems to me that you've got to then look at the, uh, the dynamics of the rowing stroke and, and how you, because you want your shell to move in a straight line as much as you possibly can. The less snaking it does sideways, the better, yeah? So you want to, you want basically symmetry um, so that... There's the stroke that everyone rows, the arc that everyone rows produces the most straight line movement of the, of the yeah. whole through the water, agreed? So that is going to require, therefore, for people with different inboard arcs, they can row different inboard arcs efficiently. It's going to require different TDs. So you, you're going to adjust, and this is fine-tuning, of course, and, but I think that with um, modern measurement techniques now, we're going to be able to do this much, much more. We're going to be able to look exactly at force curves and see, and they're already doing that now, aren't they? To see yeah. to, to see if, if force curves are working efficiently with each other, adjusting outboards, adjusting TDs to the point where, as you say, Lou, and you're getting the best stroke out of that person, which also dovetails with everyone else in the boat to produce the most efficient straight line uh, action of the stroke. I mean, does that make sense to you? It, it probably makes sense to Loon and I because we, you know, we, we've been through the peak school. Uh, uh, essentially, we have seen the light. It sounds like we're joking when we talk about moments of Damascene revelation, but 
when you came into Agecroft, uh, and that's, you know, for anyone listening, Pete was our coach at Agecroft, and you've probably heard us talk about him on the podcast before in, in terms of very, very high regard. And we do occasionally take the, you know, the piss out of Dennis, um, but we actually recognize that he ran an incredibly successful system um, and he gave us a, a, a fantastic base as oarsman to, to work from. But when Pete came in, and I've I've talked about this at, at Tyne. One of the first things that you actually did, as well as sitting us all down as a as a squad and explaining the basic physics of the rowing stroke and why more length is not a panacea for everything, you actually took us outside, made us take the eight out, take took everything off the eight, and then measured everything and set everything back up. And one of the things you did, I'll, I'll always remember it, was you you put a piece of tape at front stops where you wanted us to go in regardless of how much length we thought we could get. As soon as we were there, we were in and we were going backwards as quickly. You know, we were driving as hard as possible and no one had ever done that. And we used to cheat because Ben and I usually sat at stroke and it was, well, we'll just get an extra inch and you would spot it and go, no, no, in at the tape, in at the tape, just, just in hook on, just trust the process. But what actually struck me was this. So we had Mark Hancock and he ended up in our Henley boat, even though I think he was round about seven minutes, 6.55 for his 2K. So he was considerably slower than the rest of us in terms of if you measured his output on an oh, on yeah. erg. Yeah. But if you put him in the bows of our boat, once the stroke had been standardized, the boat always went faster with Mark in it because he could now row. He could use his boat feel and his nous and his very, very clever hands and his understanding very, very of the skillful. boat. Very skillful rower, yeah. But now he he wasn't he wasn't trying to get this massively long reach that that had been demanded of him. He could just concentrate on rowing that that arc perfectly, yeah. and essentially from the bows setting the boat up for the rest of us. I'm wondering, Pete, because of GB rowing success, we now have a standardised stroke profile. Mm-hmm. We now have a standardised approach to coaching. We have a lot of the same, if you if you move between coaches and clubs, you'll hear a lot of the same things kind of being said. I don't know if you remember this, you actually showed us a video of Redgrave in the four and in the pair with Andy, because we've been taught, oh, it's the Redgrave thing, length, length, and more and more length. Actually, he looked hunched over because of his the way his shoulders yeah. were, but his, his back was locked. Yeah. It looked like a long, slow stroke, but it wasn't. It's because he was an incredibly big man with a large wingspan. But as soon as the blade went in the water, his power was on ferociously all the way through. So this idea of a, a GB Jürgen style, it, 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 and it's based, you know, and that model was taken from, we should follow that because that's how Redgrave had success. He carried that Spracklin model through. We tend in clubs and as rowers to go, oh, something is successful. So we'll copy the buzzwords copy. and and the and this ideology that's not necessarily correct in terms of the physics of it or the application of it. Yeah, I, I'm sure that partly what you're saying is right. We should say, however, of course, that the British squad under Gobler has been the most successful it's ever been. And, and yeah, of course, I think I agree with Drew. I think Drew said uh, Gobler's the most successful rowing coach has ever been. Yeah, and that's absolutely right, isn't it? Uh, an awful lot of what they were doing is absolutely right. But I, I, but I think you're right about fashions. We look at the, the way a crew is rowing and think, well, they're going well, let's copy what they're doing with our bodies. Mm. 
and that's a huge mistake because you're, you're the thing that counts is what the blade is doing in the water. And 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 if you start from there, then tends to, things tend to fall in place. Um, I will pick up something else you guys said earlier as well. Another thing to echo what Drew said. I, I agree with Drew. An awful lot of common sense he came out with, didn't he? Mm. And one of the things he said was, "Ask a question. Why? You are asking me to do something now. Yeah. Why? For example, I mean, I hope we. I, I don't know if you want to get onto this now, but the, the feathered finish. I call it the feathered finish. Okay, you're asking me to do something at the finish now. Why? Um, and getting and 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 why that question matters so much, particularly for coaches, is that we, as coaches, we pick up these fashions, we pick up these ideas, you know." Um, whatever it might be, and then say, oh, well, that's the way we should do it. Now, so I'm going to get you as a crew to do it. But not actually think think it through deeply. Yeah. Why exactly are you saying this? There could be a, a good argument for stopping at backstops. There could be a good argument for it. Um, but but please explain what the argument is. <laughs> this business of uh, what happens at the finish when the blade comes out, it was an exercise. I can remember seeing it done at Radley. Who was it? Um, um, oh, I can't remember his name now. It slipped my mind. I'm getting old. Anyway, he, uh, Oxford coach Donald. Um, he took out the badly. <laughs> he took out badly first day, and they did this exercise: slapping the blade comes out and, and stops on the water flat. Mm. I can remember seeing you guys doing it at Agecroft as well. Is that ringing your bell? Slap catches. We you, used to well, not so much slap catches, but yeah, just like but as soon as you come through, you lift the blade out, and it's flat on the water. Mm. You actually stop at backstops with the blade flat on the water. Oh, okay, right. Does that ring a bell with you guys doing Vaguely, that? yeah. I, yeah. I seem to remember doing that. Right. I've seen a lot of crews doing it around. It became a fashionable thing to do, you know, an, an exercise. And it would have, there would have been some thinking behind it. Let's coordinate coming out of the water or something like that, you know, tie, mm-hmm. uh, tidy finish. Um, but then why stop? And um, I've had a huge argument. Aaron, you and I have argued or talked about this, haven't we? I'm quite sure we have. Yeah. What is the purpose of actually stopping at backstops, Okay. Yeah, stopping there, right? Now it could be. Well, we're going to make this a kind of pause place. They're going to make the finish, the beginning of the cycle of the stroke. Now I've heard that argued before. Now that you shouldn't mm. think about the catch as the start of everything. You should think about the finish. Work on finishes, and we'll work on finishes by stopping there, just to re- remind ourselves what it is we're supposed to be doing. Okay, but the the argument. So forgive me for running this by you, but I just find it interesting talking about this, okay? If you bring through your blade through the water square, as you should, mm-hmm. yeah, you're finishing the stroke, you've got to lift it out vertically. Yeah. Agreed? You can't start feathering before you start lifting. Yeah. Because if you do, you're putting drag force. Yeah, you're dragging the, the pin, you're dragging the actual sill down, yeah. dragging the boat down on your side, okay? Messy, messy finish, right? You've got to come out square. Yeah. It's got to come out square. The bottom has got to be clear. Figure me, I'm doing it with my hands. The yeah. bottom of the blade has got to be clear of the water before you start feathering. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. If you start, if you start rocking it sooner, you're going to flip water up. Yeah. And that is a sign of a, slot, a messy, sloppy finish, okay? So to lift the blade out, you've got to drop your hands. Yeah. When it comes through to the body, you drop the hands down and away. That's why you say down and away, okay? Then you flick it onto the feather, Yeah. It is now a good half blade width off the water. Yeah. So then what do we do? We take it back to the water. I call it a double movement. I remember seeing some of the GB crews, even the ones who were winning, you know, winning regas and things like that. And they were doing it. I can remember the girls pair. Oh, the names are going to gun. They came through to the finish and there was a double movement. Because as they came out, they the hands lifted to take the blade. Goodness knows why. 
back down to the water, and then they dropped the hands again when they started moving away. I, I don't know if I, I'm sure I'm not imagining this because I kept seeing it everywhere, double movement, double movement, double movement. What the hell for? Can you explain it? <laughs> we've we've talked about it by text message, and we we've touched upon it briefly in our in our chat last week. I think that when something when a crew starts to win. People look for a reason why a crew starts to win. So the pause at the pause at backstops, which is a kind of a St. Paul's Westminster thing, everyone starts to go, oh, well, the pause at backstops, you know, they're 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 winning because of that. Why is that? And we we actually had an argument, not an argument, we had a poll on Twitter asking why this pause at backstops had become fashionable. Because right. Kev, um, yeah, it 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 ran into several volumes. Um, <laughs> this, this argument, and Twitter's only 147 characters, but there's literally, we had some people going, well, it's physics. Because you're moving the boat that way and you're keeping your weight back longer, you get more run on the boat. Now, I was taught by Kev, and and um, I think Kev is a fundamentally great coach and a decent man, and he understands rowing really well. Right. The hands are moving all the time. They come in and they go out at the same speed. As soon as you stop at any point, you're breaking that cycle, you're training your neuro, your neuromuscular response to do something that's unnatural, especially when you start getting into higher weights, so. sorry, higher rates. I think that people saw St. Paul's and went, oh, they're winning because of the pause at backstops. That means that they're, 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 they're well drilled and they're in sync. Nobody went, St. Paul's has got a fantastic rowing program. It has for decades. They've currently got a crop of absolutely outstanding athletes who've been working together for a very, very long time. It must be the pause. That's their, you know, they're doing huge amounts of training together, yeah. but no, it must be the pause. Oh, and it's, it's physics and the physics don't make sense at that all anyway, because as soon as you've stopped, you are losing time on the recovery and at the back end. Yeah. So everything becomes rushed yeah. going forward. And then you see it repeated at um, the GB pair, I think it was Helen Glover and um, yeah. was it Stanning? Uh, uh, yeah, Stanning and Glover. Brilliant. Stanning and Glover. Brilliant gold medal. Yeah, and you can't argue, you, but they didn't win gold medals because they paused at backstops. And then you see... We've had it at Tyne, and I'm not saying, you know, we all watch YouTube videos. You watch something like the New Zealand 8 do it, yeah, yeah. you know, and they 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 might pause it at backstops. Firstly, they're putting down at 18 strokes a minute, they're putting down 150s, you know, power output. So the boat is running. So so they ha they're also doing it as a drill yeah. to to sequence the back end. Once, they're, once they start moving, the hands are actually That's moving true. constantly. Yeah, yeah. And be but because you see Glover and Stanning do it, because you see the New Zealand eight doing, because you see St. Paul's winning Henley doing it, you suddenly go, the pause, we must do pause. At 18 strokes a minute, everything, everything should be paused. Absolute nonsense. In some ways, uh, particularly I think when you're learning to row, rowing isn't simple. The boat is constantly rocking. You, you've got to do this like quite anti-instinct... Uh, the, they won't row like an experienced rower who's been coached. So I think that there's a lot of not very instinctive things about rowing. Yeah. I really do. And yeah. I think that you're looking for the secret. And when you're looking for the secret and you don't really know what the secret is, and unfortunately I think the secret is you you get the basics explained to you again and again and again eventually you start actually doing the basics you know you you haven't discovered the secret you just doing the basics. you're just enacting what yeah. the basics are people are desperately looking for that thing that will 
say, oh, I am now, I am now glorious. A silver bullet. Yeah. And yeah, they are looking for the silver bullet. And uh, it's kind of what I said about the, the, the mysticism of rowing. I think there's this huge market. I don't mean this to say in any way a kind of like malevolent or deceptive force. Coach says something, the rower enacts it. And then even if the coach just says, oh, we'll just just pause at the backstops, just because like you're losing patience. The boat's like shit. It's all over the place. It's wobbling. And then you do this thing, you pause the backstops and you do that for 10 strokes and you go back into it. And so shit, the boat's running. Yeah, they, they got that miracle. <laughs> we have discovered the secret, and I think, yeah. to be honest, that it's not just the rowers that need the secret; it's also coaches because they're saying the same thing. They know what the secret is, and the secret is the basics. Do the basics right, and do it a lot, and do it well. Do it all, yeah. But then they're not doing it and then you suddenly find this one thing that gets them doing the basics and even if that isn't actually the best single way to row the boat it suddenly makes everybody 30 percent better the boat go 20 percent faster and everybody's having a good outing and so you think in your head i have discovered the secret and i will spread this secret as far and wide as possible and we will do this secret we will do it next season and the season after and the season after that even though i don't have any of the same rowers in the boat but this is what we will do because this work remember that time back in like 94 when we got everyone together and it was so brilliant and we just we just dominated the thames we have these kind of like fashions and fads. Mm. And again, it's not about personalizing. It's not about looking at the crew in front of you and say, we're going to try again and again and again. We're going to do different things until we find the thing that makes you guys in this boat on this water row together as a crew that's doing the basics really well. Uh, two or three things from what you're saying. I, I think your analysis is very interesting, and I think it's spot on about the thing that will get you a, a level of uh, cohesion coordination, which makes things much easier. I mean, until you can balance the baby boat, then you can't row, can you? So, yeah. if you can find some way of getting that going, on, then, then that's. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, I was just, I was just thinking uh, uh, something struck me as you were speaking, and, and about what I was saying earlier about how you divide the stroke up because what we're in fact what we do is we we, we break the stroke up and say well let's stop here because if we do that we will then have a coordinated point together from which we can then do the next stroke and that's why you get single stroke exercises okay one thing was that when i was growing up uh, and learning rowing at school and college was you never ever stopped at backstops if you did stop it was at hands away off the water yeah so that the hands always moved away from the finish to hand straight. Yeah. So you and that taught you boat balance. You know, in the end, you got it in that way. But it was harder, definitely, than just flopping them out and leaving them flopping on the water. Yeah, which is safe because you're touching the water. So basically, yes. you've got a you. Yeah, yeah, it's not. You've got your tightrope pole flat on the on the water. Is it? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and again, I'm just picking up what you were saying there, Lewin, because I find it very interesting. Um, what the the thinking that it seemed to me developed and you kept hearing i kept hearing this was no the catch is not the important part of the stroke it isn't the catch that matters it's the finish that matters 
that what you're doing really is going from one finish to another. Yeah. yeah? So de-emphasize the catch. And that tied in with reach technique. You know, your, your body's in a position where you can't do anything with a bloody thing when you put it in the water because you, you're in a totally crunched and hunched position. You're in negative leverage. You can't. Yeah. That's right. Now, that tied in with that. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. I haven't got to worry about a hard catch because I'm not even after a hard catch. So that isn't what matters. Okay. You mm. then get your, your all round. I mean, some of the recommended angles for rowing and scudding were just ridiculous. And I'm not sure if they're still in the official literature, but was it Thompson, I think, who had who, who one of his books, he, wrote, he talked about, you know, a, a 50, 55 degree catch angle for the, in an eight. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. And no row would ever do it. <laughs> okay. But this is what we're aiming for. Why? Why? Ah, because we've got a blade lift force. This mm. became the fashion. <laughs> and mm. uh, Andy and I, well, I was writing a paper when Andy died, but he looked at it and he thought it looked good on, on blade lift on the hydrodynamic lift on the blade. Mm. When it goes in at the catch, you obviously are pinching the boat when it goes in. Ah, that there is force produced because the water flows along the blade, It is, which is perpendicular to the angle of the, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're getting force. And they actually said, and look at the stats, the, the, the cameras show this, the boat starts to accelerate when the oars just go in, even though you're not pulling the bloody things. You know? yeah. <laughs> ah, that also means we didn't bother about the catch. Because it's actually acceleration the boat, even if we're doing nothing with it. You yeah. see what I mean? So this whole way of thinking developed, which was now this to finish that counts. Forget about the catch. You don't need to drive your legs. You don't need to drive the body or anything. Just put the yeah. thing and squeeze. That that word squeeze, <laughs> which is just put it in and, it, and like a pip. You squeeze the pip, and, yeah. it, and it'll, the boat will start moving, and then just lean back on the oar. You know which is what produces this sense that you haven't got to use your legs. And one of the things that Spackman used to say to Andy is this technique means you do not use your legs. You just don't need to, because all you're doing is putting your blade in round at a stupid angle and leaning back on your, and then sweeping it out and then stopping at the finish. <laughs> sweeping through to the finish. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, you explained that to us as, okay, even at rate 18, the blade is in the water for a split second. Right. So, so are you really so good? You have such feel with your hands that you can actually feel when it comes on, tell your legs to start squeezing through. No, you can't. You have to get it in, get hold of it and drive it as drive hard it. as you can because you don't have time to progressively load to the finish, to sweep to the finish. That's You've good. got to be maximum force for the whole of the arc and then out and repeat. Right. right. And one of the things we talked about this, haven't we? you mentioned uh, Aaron, uh, force, force curbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and and I don't know what the current doctrine is on this. What the like you know, what saying? Like a beautifully symmetrical hill, right? Is that, that's that's what I'm being told to produce a tie-in at the minute by Dan. And I'm not, I'm not. You know, I think Dan is a great young coach, and we we share a lot of the same things. But this perfectly symmetrical, you know, like a little mountain on your on your thing. I'm pretty sure you you told us basically it should just be bang straight on until until the power goes off. Yeah, and that's it. It shouldn't be this beautiful build and then progressive. It's very interesting that because and this uh, I'm and, and I'm interested to hear that that is what what is being promoted because at one stage they said no. Um, the research indicates that the peak force should be before the orthogonal. Okay. That you and uh, and they had various reasons and explanations for why this should be the case. You know, it should it shouldn't be a symmetrical hill with peaking at the orthogonal. It should mm. be before you get there. Right. To, produce, to produce the most effective stroke. Now, uh, I can't go into it. I don't, I, I, I don't know what it was the reason they gave for that, but they did say that what you should be going for, therefore, is that. But my point is a couple of weeks. 
One is that this measurement of what is the most efficient force curve, you can't say to a rower, produce the most efficient force curve. Because, you know, how do you possibly do that? How do you say to a rower, put it in a little bit gently, build it up, pick it at your fog and all, and then let it go down again? That's not how it works. No, no rower could do that. You know, you'd have, to, you'd have to do something very extraordinary with your body in order to control it such that you produced a symmetrical peak force curve. It just can't be yeah. done, right? Second point is, would a boat ever go faster if at any stage in the force curve it's lower? It's lower. Mm. So do you say to a row, no, the boat's going to go faster if you don't put maximum force on it at the beginning and, mm. and, and peak it in the middle. Is the boat going to go faster if you do that? As far as I understand it, and I'm not a physicist and I don't you know, or an engineer even, Okay, and what do you think, Lewin, about this? Because I reckon that the, the greater the area underneath the force curve, the faster the boat will go. I am prepared <laughs> to accept some of the arguments that right. were made that you've got to a point in the stroke that is a combination because you're accelerating the boat through the stroke. There is a point before you have accelerated the boat that much where the blade is moving into the most optimum angle. Right that that is that is going to mean that that is the point where you have to put the most force on right. i think you get there by getting to the catch and slamming the legs on <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I, I don't want to be like i don't want to be daft about this but it's like you know fundamentally that i think they talked it, when I, I we probably were reading the same books at the same time yeah, yeah. um but they or probably looking at the BioRow website. But I think they were talking about the fact that it's about 15 to 20 degrees before the catch is the most efficient point to put force on. Before so the orthogonal. roughly, yeah, before the orthogonal. Right. So roughly when like you're at three-quarter slide right. and you're properly braced and you're properly driving the legs down, right. which is kind of yeah all right that's, that's probably when i'm putting the most force on um but you know strictly speaking i want to put the most force on i want to keep the most force there i'm prepared to believe that you know you give a great athlete a lot of time bef behind the oar and they will adapt their stroke to what gives them the smallest amount of slip the most amount of boat speed and and you know that that kind of like that awareness and feel over tens of thousands of strokes will build build up and it's probably why you know rowers are better when they're 35 at moving the boat even though the erg scores are starting to come off <laughs> yeah, yeah but again it's a question of like who are we teaching here Practice at rate 18, practice at rate 22, practice at rate 26, practice at a little bit at rate 30 and 34 because you can't do too much of that because you're knacker yourself. Mm -hmm. And each time you, you're there, you've got to be, as Jez said, training with interest. You've got to be thinking, what am I doing? Am I actually, am I making the boat go faster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but when you're actually, you've got a bunch of people who are, a month, a year, two years into their rowing career, what you've got to do is you've got to get them rowing together. You've got to get them a foundation of which they can build that, like, 
yeah, I'm about I'm about 23 degrees off the orthogonal. This is when I've got to feel the most, you know, kind of like force on my fingertips. You can build that over the next five years of your own career. But now what you've got to do is get it in there, get the work on, because you're you're dealing with non-Newtonian fluid. And if you don't get the work on, the blade is going to slip. And that is that's that's wasted. Yeah. It's like you're not moving the boat. You've got to get the work on. You've got to feel the water turn to jelly on the end of your blade. And then you've got to feel that pushing the pin backwards. And you've just got to hang on to that. You've got to hang on to that sensation of you're putting acceleration onto the blade handle the whole way through. Mm -hmm. And if you do that and you do that together and everybody is totally committed to that goal and everybody knows everyone else is totally committed to that goal of hanging on to the blade as much as you can from the catch to the finish, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. I'm absolutely right. Again, um, just a couple of thoughts to pick out what you were saying. Um, yeah, that, I'm sure that's right. It, it, uh, uh, and if you like, the philosophy is it's not what you're doing with your body that counts. It's what the blade is doing. Yeah. It's what your oar is doing. So concentrate on that and make that the explanation for why you're doing something. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and I think with reach technique and all the other, these other things we say, the question just isn't asked. You know, why am I asking them to go around right around the rigger? What is the point of doing it? You know, how is that going to move the boat further? It's something that looks nice. In fact, a crew that can do it, it looks, as you say, balletic. It can look beautiful when a crew is doing yeah. it. But the question is, why are they doing it? Another thing that struck me was to go back to this business of the of what kind of force curve you're trying to produce. And something came up in the, in the conversation with Drew, which which I, I think, Aaron, you may have said this, and I might have misheard it, that Spracklin's reason for sitting back, does this ring a bell with you? I think you, you talked about it with him, was to row a, a longer finish. Is that your understanding of why Spracklin crews look as though they're lying back in the old Eton way? Or um, if I, mis I misremembered that. Or mis no, no, that's that's an interesting point. I might have said that in the conversation with Drew. I'd, I'd have to check it. Right. My, my understanding of, so when you came to Agecroft, yeah. we ended up, we were not reaching at, at the catch. Yeah, we, yeah. And we started to row a very, very dynamic catch. But what we were doing was, in, instead of, of loading through the stroke to the end, you wanted an instant change of direction, which means it was a very, very aggressive leg drive. Yeah. You didn't want a huge rock over. You, you actually, I remember you coaching that from the launch. You wanted a, an almost upright, you know, very loose inside hand, very, you know, um, but the leg drive was so violent that what then happens is you're, you're, as you, you naturally start to open out your body, your, your leg drive continues into the body weight going against the pin and because it's so violent you end up sitting back more perhaps than you would have done in a in a, in a standard stroke so you've got a bit of a, a, a layback not an ali chapman layback but you you it's it's the sheer force of it is so it's so aggressive that you're carried further back yeah at Tyne, at the minute we have this you know we're, we're we talk about this idea of um holding the finish and some people have interpreted it as we need to pause at backstops. Right. And and what it actually means is you are you are holding the finish by 
aggressive leg drive, body weight, your back is opening out, your body weight's going onto the pin, yeah. and you're holding the connection through to the finish, which means that you're not getting loose and you're, you're, you're washing out. Right. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I'm interested to hear you say that. So that was the thing you noticed in the difference that were, when I got hold of you guys, that you were, you were sitting back further, were you, than you had been doing? It felt like, I don't know what it looked like from the boat, but it felt like we were really hold, holding it right. And Dennis would say, well, I was trying to make you hold it all the way through anyway, I, I'm sure, because he's, he's, he is a very, very good coach. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, I, I never asked him why, because I was scared of him. Lewin asked him why all the time, because he, he, he wasn't, <laughs> basically. I just did it. I was I was a good soldier. But that, um, it was just like a bang. And, and actually, because you were connected and holding it all the way through, once you came out, you, you actually you actually felt like you had loads of time to yeah. come to then come forward. That's I mean that's sting and float. I mean to me that's why sting and float is such yeah. a way of doing it because you've got so much time in between. It, it mm. feels like magic, doesn't it? I mean, you've hit the thing so bloody hard. It's running so fast. You've got all the time in the world to come forward again. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested what you say. That it just reminds me of something when uh, Spratlin got hold of Andy and they got in the four. Uh, as particularly in the, in the end when Redgrave turned up, uh, apart from this feeling of immense and brutal power, which Martin Cross talks about, he said he'd yeah. never felt such power. Yes. Um, one of the things that uh, Spratlin kept saying to Andy was, sit back, sit back. If you don't sit back, I'm going to chuck you out of this boat. Yeah, and, and did he mean? And did he mean that. sit? Uh, did he mean holding the connection and the sitting way back? You the way you explain it, I think, is very nice, which is mm. that it's, it's not so much that you are deliberately swinging back it's that the only way you can actually keep the force on you've got mm. this massive force you're generating with your leg drive and the only way you can sustain it is to actually sit back is to really wrestle backwards with your body yeah. to keep up that power i think what spratkin was saying was you're just losing it you're just losing the the the, uh, the effect of the leg drive because you're not using your body backwards to harness yeah. it so you're not yeah you're not bracing and that's it. and yeah that's it, yeah so I, the point I was trying to make was that, uh, uh, and, and this is why, I mean, I might have misunderstood what you said, but uh, as I understood it, Spratkin said, sit back, not to row a longer finish, because there is no point. There is there is an efficient finish angle, and that's it. There's no point yeah. carrying on like a quacking duck with your, your blade flapping. In the, uh, mm. It's to row a harder finish. The, yeah. the, 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 the sitting back idea is to row a harder finish, but it doesn't. it isn't something you do, as it were, separately. Like, I'll row the first half of the stroke with my legs, and then I'll sit back with my body. That's not how it works. It it's connected. Total, it's gestalt. It's total, right? Yeah. It is blasting with your body from catch to finish as hard as you can. And the only way you can do that is by having a strong back and sitting back really hard against the leg drive. That's the well, whole point. Well, basically, yeah. it goes back to the whole kind of like biomechanics thing. It's a triple extension. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's like it's the ankles, it's the knees, and it's the hips yeah. working in concert. It's basically, yeah. uh, God, I... I don't know who wrote this, but it's like rowing is a series of two-footed jumps through the water. <laughs> and it's like whoomph, and the whole thing is about being perfectly ready to take the next jump when cool. you when your feet come back down. That's it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and you know, when you jump, it is it's kind of like uh, uh we probably shouldn't get into the the rowing from your heels debate, right. but when you jump, there is the calves, the thighs, and the buttocks are working in concert. 
Mm. And it, it's the combination of the three things that launches you up. And it's like if you take one of them away, it's not going to work. The other, the other. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Again, a uh, couple of thoughts from what you're saying. Um, the business of it being a, to a to totality. Uh, picking up a ball maybe a, a good analogy I found, and why I found it the most effective uh, cross-training thing to do is a, a clean with a barbell from the floor to the shoulders. Yeah. If you get that right, the only way you can do it is by using your legs properly to start with. If you don't use your legs, nothing else is going to work. You know, you can't yeah. lift your back, you can't pull your arms, nothing's going to work unless you use your legs. And, if, and it won't work if you don't coordinate. In other words, you can't say, I'm not going to use my legs first, then I'm going to use my back, and then I'm going to use my arms. It doesn't work like that. It's yeah. just, I'm going to get this thing from the ground to my shoulders, and I'm going to do it in the most efficient way I can. And that is the best analogy I found for the stroke. And certainly with the crews I was coaching, when we did do weights, I found the clean was the one that I really wanted it to get right and to perfect. Because mm. it, it's not the same, of course not, as the rowing stroke, but it is nonetheless jolly close to it. And also this thing about... Um, to build on that, uh, the, the, the totality of it with the foundation of legwork, um, which is a, a fair down idea and goes back even earlier, in fact, um, that if you don't use your legs, you're not going to get it right. Unless you use the legs properly and to their full extent, it doesn't matter what else you do. Okay, So you've got to be in a position to the catch where you can use your legs so you can't be overcompressed. Uh, and you can't be all squashed up because, of course, like cycling with your saddle too low, it just doesn't work because your yeah. legs are too tight. So my thinking was not close the angles as much as you possibly can. It's keep the angles as open as you possibly can because yeah. from that position, you're in the stronger position to move fast and hard in order to finish. And that's, that's why yeah. you don't want to double over with your back and punch your shoulders and scrunch your legs up, you know, Yanisek uh, technique uh, or reach technique. Um, I was just going to say I'm reminded of with you guys, the H-Croft crew, when you, when you cracked it. And we started to have an outings where I didn't have to keep saying, you oh, know, do this, do that, do the other, which, you know, happened, it happened much sooner than you might realise, I think. Uh, Not like an eternity period. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, I think it used to get cost to me because I'd sit in the launch on the other side of the river and you guys would be rowing up <clears throat> and I'd just be looking at you at a distance and to see, yeah. because the, the joy, and I think most coaches would agree with me about this, the absolute joy is to see a crew which through joint endeavour, including your own input, starts to get it right. Yeah. And, and that happens when you see the boat move with the legs. I'm convinced of this, that the crews that I've seen and I've coached that are really, really good are the ones where you think the legs are on immediately yeah. and they're on all the way through yeah. because you've coordinated the whole movement. And, and that produces the most power. Conversely, you'll see sometimes crews who are working incredibly hard doing all the things they're doing, but they're not using their legs properly. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and that's why they're not winning. It's why they're not going as fast as they possibly could. You know, I'm sure that's the case. You know? yeah. Which, which is work. why you used to say, you used to say, look, good, good rowing looks lazy. It looks yeah. effortless. It looks yeah. loose. It looks, it looks like all of those things because it's, it's about your fundamental. It looks like Matt Bucknell. <laughs> it, it looks like Matthew Bucknell who, who rowed like he was sipping a fine single malt whiskey while sitting in a dressing gown while his manservant prepared the morning papers. Bless him. <laughs> But you're talking about efficiency and efficiency of movement. And, you know, I just want to throw a couple of things at you. So first of all, sure. the the idea that we've talked about, you know, uh, we call it, Loon started calling it, and I, I do now, 
uh, coaching mood music where everyone throws around buzzwords like sit at the, you know sit back at the finish or or, or connection or you know um, sweeping through to the finish these kind of buzzwords that that are thrown around that, that unless you actually collectively agree what they mean and when you came in we started actually breaking down our calls and working out what we wanted technically from each of them a lot of coaches might because Lewin has identified rowing as a learned skill it looks incredibly easy when you see it done well but it actually takes a long time to get that and the only way that you get it is by doing it a lot and going through all of the mistakes that you make until you actually get it and when you get it you get it yeah. um so the coaching the the buzzwords that are thrown around firstly sometimes they're thrown around because they haven't necessarily been thought through they've just been picked up Secondly, it's a way of kind of sugaring the pill and trying to get people past that early stage where they, they don't get it to the point where they do. The third thing is you told us, and again, this is no, you know, Dennis would have said, he always said, go in the water with a purpose. Never just go out, you know, for the sake of going out, go in the water with a purpose. You said, be thinking rowers, think about what you're doing, at, you know, at, not just at rate 18, all the way through. What am I doing? Why am I doing? What am I doing? And the other way, and you, you're dead right. You just used to bugger off to the far side of the Irwell. And we'd be like, where's our coach? We need our coach to be yelling at us. This is what coaches do. This is this is their job. And you went, you have to work it out for yourselves. You know what you're supposed to be doing. And, and that is, you know, mileage makes medals, mileage makes champions. You have to do the work. There is no silver bullet. You have to do the work. Wasn't there an outing where you said, I remember you saying this there one time, I wasn't with you or something. You were top of the river, nighttime one maybe. And, mm -hmm. and it was going a bit shit. And then uh, was it Ali stood up and turned around and said, look, guys. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> we went what we're trying to do. Let's go yeah. back down doing it this time. Yeah. yeah basically, um, Ali was, at, I think you tended to rotate. Uh, ben was at stroke a, a lot in that season. Ali occasionally went to stroke and Ben went at six. I usually stayed at seven. You did try and experiment with me at bow. And I think I said, Pete, um, I it really was, like you being were very at, upset. I remember. Yeah, <laughs> I really like being at seven. I don't like being at bow. I think I'm a natural seven man. That might have just been pure ego talking. But That's I, just because it's chilly at bow. You get the wind <laughs> going down your neck. It's like I, no. I once got moved to two. It was horrible. I, yeah, I, well, I, I bought a snood after that. Plus, the, the boat would have ploughed into the water with you out that in. Well, yeah. Um, the, the the thing about Mark was he was smaller than the rest of us, so he didn't get quite as as, as chilly. There was chilly, less of him right. to be hit hit by the yeah. wind. No, we we'd gone down. I think you'd been with us for a couple of months, two or three months. We'd been working hard. I think you knew that we probably had the fitness to do what you want, which is an important point. You can't oh, God, yeah. you can't row well if you're not fit enough to 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 maintain your stroke. Tell you what, one thing: time. you were the fittest squad I ever I ever turned up to coach. That well, was, and that was from the previous season so okay yeah um but we'd rode down we weren't getting it we thought we were trying we probably weren't we thought we bought into it we, we probably hadn't i think ali was the person who approached you initially and to be fair to ali I, i've always flagged up that he he saw us in different boats and went there's a good eight here waiting to happen i think it's a potential henley eight if i get them together and when he told us his idea, look, lads, if we row together, I think we can make Henley. 
I think we could be a good crew. We probably didn't quite believe him, but we, you know, we were bouncing around in other squads and other crews and, and what have you. And Ali was a great, he was a really good captain. He was a I great agree. man manager. He was, a, he was a good captain. I agree. And on, on this particular outing, you'd been with us for maybe two or three months. It was maybe just coming up to Rutherford. We'd rode up to Manchester. He was at stroke and it was, it was shit. We were working hard, but it was terrible. It was abysmal. And we were getting all of the jokes from, you know, the the the, the first date who just won Henley and, and what have you, you know, do, are you only allowed to row arms only? Does your mother know you're out? You know, you can take a full stroke if you want to. We spun at the top and he, and he turned around and said, lads, Pete has given us this way of rowing and we know that it works because we've had moments of doing it. We're setting a good rhythm. We know what we need to do. Let's just fucking do it and stop fucking about. And it, it literally, um, we did a time piece from the, the, the from one bridge in Manchester, the Lowry Bridge, all the way down to the BBC. And I I'm, think I'm right in saying it still stands as the as the age course record for that for going back up on the reach. It was about twelve or thirteen minutes for four or five k. I can't remember what it is. It's in my diary somewhere. And it start. It was like lads. It's really simple. Just do it. You just have to do it. And that that feeds back in. You know those three points I made, coaches use buzzwords sometimes because they've been handed down and they haven't thought about why they're using them or thought or thought them through. They use them to kind of sugar the pill to get to get people over the hump of learning until they get it. But at the end of the day, you have to be a thinking rower. You have to take ownership of what you do and you have to do mile after mile after mile. It's like learning to play the violin. Yeah. You have to do the mechanical work to get to the state of grace. Yeah. Pete, hey, on that on that thinking rower idea, on on the podcast, we've talked to some genuinely great rowers. You had the but best. Yeah. When, why they came on, but they did talk to us. But, you know, so when we talked to um, ATH and Jack Beaumont, and then we talked to Drew Ginn, and we talked to um, Eric Murray. It seems like. Now, I, I don't know what things are like now, but it seemed when, when we're talking to the GB rowers versus the Antipodean rowers, the Antipodeans did take more ownership of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. They they seemed like and they felt like more in charge. So obviously there was like Drew Ginn with his hacksaw going at the boat. So fair enough. That That's like an extreme example. But also I think Eric Murray basically said – we go out for our outing in the morning on on the water i would then basically i sat on the ergo and i did ergos with the physiologist's advice hamish went out on the bike because he was saving his back so it was like they were clear they were given this choice it's like okay this is what you're going to do in the morning in the afternoon You've got to do something, but it's like you choose how you're going to make yourself a better rower. That strikes me as though it's something that could really lead to champions. Mm. People just being told, you've got to make, you can't do nothing, but we're making you responsible for working out what you're going to do. Here are all these resources, how are you going to use them? Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Um, To be fair... I suspect that, uh, I mean, we don't know what goes on inside a squad, do we? Uh, 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 
so our impressions of what's been going on perhaps inside British Rail for some time might not be correct. And, and my feeling is that, to be honest, if you're going to get crews that are up to that level and they're going to win gold medals, they're going to have been doing the work themselves anyway. In, in other words, you can't get robots. You can get robots to a certain stage, but in, mm. they, they, they have to take control of what they're doing. And whenever you hear, you know, Pinson talking about things, I've heard him and, and others more recently, uh, who've done extremely well. Uh, they do talk about the interaction that they have with the coaches and how it's in the process of negotiation mm. and things like that, you know. So, you know, I, it's not... It, I, I, but I, I think I'm just on your side about this business of really taking ownership, of understanding, trying to understand exactly what it is you're doing, reading as much as possible, talking to as many people as possible, arguing, asking questions, so that you do get a much, much fuller and clearer understanding of what it is you're trying to achieve. I'm sure that's that's, that's right. I'm sure it is, yeah. But that's that has to overcome a cultural barrier of we have a coach and the coach tells us what to do. And and again, I'm not referring back to, to anything in, in kind of our past history or or anything like that. But there is almost a comfort blanket in having a coach next to you going, okay, we're now going to do pause drills or whatever. Sometimes, well, not even sometimes, um, I, I bounced around at Agecroft for a lot until Ali brought us all together and we had a we had a reasonably decent first season and we qualified for 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 Henley yeah and I think I'm right in saying that it was Ali who first approached you maybe because of the Manchester Uni connection um I don't know um but it, it, he basically got us together and like look Pete's coming in um we're all going to buy into it we're going to do exactly what what he says because we are we were a fast crew but what we were was inconsistent, which is why we got mullered by Green Lake at, at Henley. Right. And I think I'm right in saying um, we went through the head season uh, under you completely, completely unbeaten. Um, and a lot of it was was fitness, which 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 helps. But a lot of it was actually understanding not just what we were doing, but why we were doing it. And the this I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Um, the thing that actually when it started to click for me was ali ben matt and i sculled the length of the thames we did it in a in a quad so we did 150 miles over four days and we stopped we stopped the on the water there was no time for the on the water discussions about what are we doing at the catch and 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 and, and, and how are we feeling about the finish and what drills should we do we just we just rode every day for eight or nine hours. We sculled eight, you know, for eight or nine hours every day. And by the end of it, you know, firstly we were fit because we'd done the equivalent of about a month's training in four days. And we were reasonably fit anyway. But you you find the most efficient way to move the boat. And um by doing it over and over again. And there's no shortcut for that. Right. And I'm pretty sure you and I talked at the time. The GB Coxless Four Men's Heavyweight Coxless Four Final at the Olympics. I'm sure we the, there's a text message exchange or or a, or, a, or a messenger exchange where we both went. Look, they're not rowing the GB standard stroke. They're, they're rowing a very very sprackling arc. And you said yes. That's because if you put people in a boat for long enough and tell them to get on with it, they'll find the most efficient way of moving it. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 And that's fair, Ben. Of course, mileage makes champions. 
Yeah, Milers makes champions. Yeah, which is going. I mean, Fairburn was nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. That's right. Yeah, 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 you know. Yeah, yeah. No, he's uh, funny to read. It's worth reading, Fairburn. It's ever so funny because he's a total nutter <laughs> <laughs> and, and, a, and, a, and a complete narcissist and egotist. It's extraordinary reading Fairburn, but you know, you can distill from it the stuff that made yeah. him. They just loved him at Cambridge. You know, he was he was God. They used mm. to say, "Oh, God's on the bank. Let's let's, let's row properly." You know? Let's let's row properly now. He's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it, 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 it comes back to, uh, and maybe it's, maybe we live, you know, we live in the age where the most, the best-selling genre of literature is the self-help genre. Everyone, everyone is looking, we do, we do, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, yeah. everyone is looking for the answer. Everyone is looking for the silver bullet, but but most things in life, the, the, everything is learned. We're, we're born knowing nothing. Everything is learned. Um to do something like rowing, you know, which is wonderful. And the reason we call it magical is because when it does click, like that night row when we, we beat the first eight over two pieces or the Rutherford head, if you meet any of that eight and say, what was your best row? They'll go the night row, Rutherford head. Yeah. Because it was 6K of, of flawless rowing. Yeah. We went past the first boat in the first 30 strokes and we saw no one else for the rest. And it was, it was like rowing in a bubble. It was yeah. magical. Yeah. It's not mystical. It's magical when it clicks. That's yeah. why we do it, because when it clicks, it feels great. But to get to a state of grace, whether it's on a musical instrument or in a rowing boat or in your profession or in anything you do, you have to do the mechanical work and you have to do it properly right. to get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pete, can I? Yeah. Can I like kind of? I I I, I think we should probably like move towards wrapping up because you know we, we've sure. got listeners and they got busy lives and i don't sure. i don't i don't, don't want to make a monster podcast but in some of the kind of philosophical things you you said you just you didn't come from a rowing family um likewise i didn't even though my dad would have made an awesome rower um what was it that just hooked you in what made you love it so much uh good question um there uh, although i said we're not a rowing family there was water and boats in my family because my dad okay. was a boat, the boat a boat builder so i mean you ask that question it makes me think um he used he built his own little dinghies he was a woodwork teacher uh, mm -hmm. he built boats and in the end he gave up teaching and took uh, opened his own boat yard he had a boat yard in Hansler, <laughs> and he mm. used to repair sailing dinghies and things like that and we used to work on them so boats and water was a thing uh, he built little uh, dinghies, and we went down to our local canal, Cowley, and it was a Sunday thing. It was great fun. We used to put the boat on a trailer and just a little dinghy, you know, skiff sort of thing, uh, and we'd do some little bit of rowing and up and down the canal. So I suspect that it was part. That was partly it. Okay, <laughs> it was in the blood. Um, but what was it? I think it was like for you, probably for everyone, just getting into a boat and realizing what fun it is. I mean. It, Boils down to that, doesn't it? I enjoyed it the first time I did it. Um, my school, I was lucky enough to be a, at a rowing school. I was lucky enough to be a rowing school with a rowing tank, because I think a rowing tank is one of the most important things. I think, sadly, Latimer may have filled in their tank, which was at the bottom of underneath the boathouse. Uh, there'll be people who could cl clarify that. But I can remember hearing and thinking, what a thing to do. Fancy, fancy filling in a rowing tank. <laughs> Because it's the best place to learn how to row a blade. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I had these advantages: uh, good school uh, uh, rowing uh, ethos uh, and uh, 
good coaches and those things, you know. And so it just you re- you very rarely talk about rowing a boat. You always talk about rowing a blade because because that's where it starts and i think that's a really important distinction for anyone who's listening to this to actually get you don't row a boat what you do is you're in a boat but you're rowing the blade right uh, although funny out there and i've been shouted out about that people have told me off i said why do you why do you know you talk about rowing a blade all the time i've actually picked up that expression from the uh, rowing books that we res- i researched yeah uh, in the past they used to talk about rowing a blade all the time and i think i think fairbairn does i might be wrong in remembering that but certainly many of them do so I've sort of carried the expression forward um, without, you know, you asking me a question now, and I'm, and I'm not entirely sure I can. Uh, or are you? No, I, I just think it's an important distinction because yeah. I could, I was fit and I could row, but actually how I rowed my blade, yeah, that was what you brought into my understanding, and that's and that's what I've been working with or working on ever right. since. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, maybe maybe it's just the. the it's everything from maybe you, should, everything. maybe you should maybe you should row with a blade rather than row a blade. Yeah, you know, rowing a blade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I quite like it. Um, yeah, and and so I don't know. Do, do you feel that? Okay, right. I'm I'm going to have to explain this question because it, it it sounds slightly dark. But do you feel that rowing is a sport for rowers? So you get people and they try rowing and they don't like it. And then you get people and they try rowing and they can't leave it because they're rowers. There there is just like, there is something a little bit, you know, every, every rower has the same kind of kernel of difference inside them that keeps them rowing, that keeps them thinking, this is, this is what I should be doing. Can you answer your own question? I think so. I, right. Okay. The broken oars podcast policy statement is that (laughs) rowing is for all. Absolutely. That everybody in the world should be able to get on somewhere in the country onto a sliding seat in a boat, and go for a paddle and 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 if if they can't the government should change things so that they can that (laughs) that is that is the policy statement of broken laws podcast so i've seen it i've read it i've read it but okay i kind of feel that not everybody is going to be a rower and not all rowers are the same but there is within people who row and people who keep rowing, there is something that brings them back to it. It's like this game of mobile golf. You know, the golf swing is is very simple. There's a ball, hit the ball. You know, just smack the ball with this thing on the end of this shaft as, as hard as you can in a straight line. Yeah. But there's just this weird kind of like collection of things that you can't explain is very difficult to put into words all at once that you have to get right in order for it to be good. And when it is good, it's just, it's a thing of magic, right? I mean, it's literally, it's almost beyond human comprehension, right? Now we're, we are 
we are the addicted talking to each other. You do realize, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, literally, that that's what that's what I'm kind of thinking that, but that we that there was something within us that had been made by the time we first sat in that boat. Now, are, Lewin, are you saying that you're saying there's a personality type that suits rowing that doesn't suit other sports, or, or is that what you're trying to get at? There's a there's a type that does rowing I'm, that loves it. Because I'm, 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 I'm saying that within every personality, there is there is a there is like a certain like key function mm. that makes that makes a person who who, when they sit in that boat, they say yes, yes. Now, yeah. now this. That's okay. It, and and th- that doesn't mean there is one personality type that becomes a rower. I think there are lots, but I think there is there is a kernel of a rower yeah. that is that you're not going to stick with rowing without. Yeah, I, I think you must be right. I, I'm inclined to say that this must be the same for any sport. So that uh, the point is, and this must surely be right, that everyone should have access to everything. So, for example, you know, you want everyone to be able to get on a tennis court and whack a tennis ball around. Yeah. Uh, because there will be some who will fall in love and who will go on to love the sport and maybe even do well in it. So I'm inclined to, I mean, my, my son, uh, Jonah, is a professional rugby player. And yeah. for him, it was rugby. And he just yeah. loves the sport, you know, and he's still doing it. Um so, and he would say, oh, there's something about rugby, which is just magical when it works, you know. And do you see what I mean? So uh, yeah. I'm inclined to say that's right. I, mean, I asked the question about personality type because I've often reflected on this. And maybe it's because you mix with rowers. So you're mixing with someone who loves what you love. So they like to have a lot, an awful lot in common with you. Um, and I've always just loved rowing types. I just like the, there's a kind of uh, calmness uh, about a rowing type. Uh, it's something philosophical. I don't. I'm not into spiritualism and all that stuff. But there, you know, that I just like rowing types. Um, yeah. We have a kind of self-possession. We stupid generalisation. Our tribe. An awful tribe. lot of an awful lot of the ones that I've come across that I've liked an awful lot. I've liked them because they are. <laughs> They're, they're like me. They're like me. People like, like us. <laughs> <laughs> Intelligent, <laughs> sensitive, good looking, <laughs> masterful with the ladies. All, all those all those things. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't know. You can get silly about it, can't you? But I'm, I'm sure you're right. But I think it's I think it's that there'll be other kinds of for example, I mean the rugby players are gonna be it can't, it can't even be to do with wanting to work with other people because, you know, team sports, you work with other people, don't you? And the good yeah. ones are the ones who do work with other people. Mm. So there is something very singular about sitting in a boat, going the wrong direction, not looking where you're going, um, and trying to work with other people to produce the perfect piece of rowing. You know what I mean? There's something, mm. There is something rather insular about it. Um, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but uh, something very interior about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you think it breaks down even further? Because I, I, I have, a, and it might actually have been you who, who, who broke it down, but I think that in an eight, for example, you know, which we, which we go back to. And, and the reason we go back to it is it's, it's a blue ribbon boat because when it works well, it's magical, but it takes, it takes a lot of work to make it well, to, you know, a lot of work to make it work well, which is why when it eventually clicks, it's so intensely satisfying. Yeah. But everyone in that eight has a role from stroke down to bow. 
And a lot of people don't get that. They talk about three being the ejector seat or, you know, the middle four being the meat wagon. Oh, they just pull. And, and it, I'm pretty sure it was you who said this. It's like, no, there's, so say Ben's at stroke. So Ben is setting a rhythm and Ben was, you know, bulletproof. I know, I know that Lou and Ben used to strike sparks off each other, but in terms of his, his rhythm and his ratio and his timing, you could ask him to sit at 18 or 38 and he would just sit there forever, regardless of what the rest of us did. I liked being at seven because I basically I'd sat next to Ben for years on the rowing machine, lifted weights with him. We, you know, I, I liked that feeling of setting the rhythm, reinforcing his work, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't setting the rhythm. He was, I was translating his rhythm to six, who was then fire. He was firing the rest of the meat wagon yeah. to actually, you know, to, to reinforce that and build upon that. And then you go down to, um, two and, and one and Mark usually ended up in, in the bow seat because he was just, he was just great at setting the boat up from the bows. Um, so even within our tribe, we, we have some people who are natural stroke men. You know, you'd, you might say that Matt Pinson was a natural stroke or, or red gray, but then he eventually ended up moving back in the boat. So when he was with Andy, he, he was at stroke and Andy was a, 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 oh, yeah. a, a um, but you might say Redgrave's a, a natural stroke man, whether he's, regardless of what he's in, he's always going to be at the front. You might say Chapman was a perfect six man because he he had no off switch. He would just carry on going until someone said stop. You might say someone like Sean was a perfect five man because he, he was long and incredibly powerful, but he also had that aggressive, you know, mentality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So even, even within our tribe, we- There are different really, types, yeah. Yeah, there's different types, but we recognize maybe the importance of each other or the way that when it when it comes together and it works in a way that it did it in that aid and in that environment at that time, um, there's a blend there that's really, really hard to replicate. And maybe as rowers, we keep going back to rowing because we're looking for that magical outing or that magical bit. And we're looking for that magical thing when when completely different people in a lot of ways come together and everything becomes synergistic and it just it just meshes it just meshes but i I, again we are converts talking to each other aren't we of course (laughs) preaching to the choir choir, i mean and this is just to kind of come in and we we we, i think loon we we generally ask this question of most of our listeners do you have thoughts upon I don't know if you're if you're coaching at at, at the moment or or what have you, but do you have thought because you think very deeply about rowing? You always did, uh, and that came across very very clearly when you coached us. And there was always a rationale behind anything you asked us to do and a reason behind it. Do you look at British rowing now, both in, in terms of the squad, but also the wider culture of rowing that we now have in this country because of the success of of, of the squad? What do you think we're doing well as a sport? Um, where do you think we're potentially going as a sport? And what would you like to see us do better? Um, I, I think I'm going to have to say these are bigger questions than I can answer. They're sort of above my pay grade. Or rather, I've been out of the... I haven't, I haven't been coaching for a long time now uh, for various reasons, family, okay. practical, distance, just even getting to Agecroft took me, took me forever, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I don't think I can you know, um, really provide decent answers to those questions. Um, clearly, like the rest of us, I've been aware of the fact that the last uh, Olympiad didn't go so well mm. uh, and the loss of Jürgen. And, and I, I don't even know who's replaced Jürgen. I mean, who's in charge now? 
um eat oh t- so so they had the, they had this bizarre system where they had like four head coaches right um which Always i worked. i i think was basically um a pit fight <laughs> it was like who does best um in tokyo is and and it was the guy it was the guy who's in charge of the scholars right um i can't remember his name right. um but he he is now basically head coach head coach okay yeah mm. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, it, it, my point is that I just don't know. That shows how, how out of things I am, you know. Um, okay. Stannard, there we go. Is, is that right? Yeah, 5th of Jan, 2022, Paul Stannard. Paul Stannard, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I've got great respect for the, the, the whole setup ever since they, it really developed from, from Penny's work. Uh, we, it, we can't have had the success we've had if it hadn't, if it hadn't been a you know, damn good system. That they mm-hmm. have going so uh, huge respect for the, the the coaching setup uh and the way it's been organized and managed and so on and so forth i mean it's, it's just been brilliant now it, it might be that um uh, post jurgen there's going to be a, a period of rebuilding that's not a bad thing you know, it's yeah. not a bad thing to have a if you stay at the top all the time then you're likely to let things slip aren't you and that's what happened i think uh, somehow maybe there's just wasn't quite such a good crop of, of balls and there are all sorts of reasons why things happen aren't they so um I uh, I certainly, in, in other words, I just I don't think I can add anything particularly to any thoughts about those questions. I'm sorry. I mean, have no, you no, got it's fine. It's, it's, any- it's <laughs> remarkably honest because we we happily and gleefully weighed in on questions way above our pay grade regularly. This is the marvel of being a podcaster. You can just talk absolute nonsense about stuff that you're completely unqualified for such yeah. as like well, uh, if, if i was in charge of the national squad <laughs> yeah we weren't we weren't inviting you to put the boot into anyone in in the national squad but you know having, right. we you know we're, we're not um we're massive supporters of it we we've talked to people like jack who uh jack beaumont is is a, a remarkably nice person as well as an extraordinarily good scholar andy hodge has been on a few times he's doing right. Right. He's doing wonderful work with um, London Youth Rowing and trying to, you know, he he's talked very honestly and openly with us about the finding the sport at university gave him a, a huge amount of purpose and it gave him um, identity and a way forward and he, he took it with both hands and now he wants to pass that on to yeah. other other young people. Sure. Um, Mark Davis um, from British Rowing has been on and 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 was very very passionate about where he wants to see the sport go in terms of growing it because we we lose about 10,000 people every year from the sport yeah. and that's that's replaced by people coming into it but if we could if we could maintain that sure. you know just think what a sport we'd have yeah. so we weren't we, we we're not snarky podcasters well okay I'm occasionally sarcastic <laughs> but I'm not snarky yeah. we're very passionate about the sport and we both love it so we weren't saying you know feel free to kind of wade in and and, and stick the nut on someone yeah. it's just we do it is a it is a niche sport in a lot of ways. We do lose a lot of people from it because of the, the demands of training. Because you know, rowing is a sport that takes a lot of time, even just driving to the boathouse and getting the boat out and things like that. And it, it's how can we how can we get this thing that can be so magical, that can be so wonderful, that can give you such a sense of purpose and identity? Um, how can we get it out to kind of more people? So we we just ask that for the, for yeah, those reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, but I, and I think the answers would be very similar to the, you know, the rugby people who say, how can we get people playing rugby? You know, mm-hmm. it's facilities, it's coaches who are willing to give their time 
amateur coaches give their time for youngsters to bring them on. Uh, rowing has had its very good fair share of those, you know, volunteers in clubs all over the country. You know, sure. thousands and thousands of, of hours of time and effort put in selflessly to do that, and you know, and so carry on with that. I, I, I don't. I, apart, it's always about money. It's always about resources. Yeah. Um, and the more we can get for the sport, the better. Um, that's all I really have to think I could say about that, you know. It's been, an, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you again, Pete. I'm, so, I'm sorry that it, it took so long, and it's taken a podcast for us to actually get together and have a chat again. But I'm glad that it, I'm glad that it has. It has. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for coming on. And yeah, and uh, no, I would like to say thank you for sharing. It, it's actually, you know, it's one of the it's one of the privileges of doing this that we can like get these ideas and kind of these conversations out there and mm. say. You know, it's not that this is right. It's like, have a think about this. What yeah. can this do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Same. Well, many thanks for me. I, I've greatly enjoyed it. Nice to talk to you guys. Ladies and gentlemen, Pete Holmes, and I'm not going to use the tagline that I used upon the, the, the you know, the talking points document, but a, a fine coach and an even better human being. Thanks so much, Pete. Thanks, Thank Pete. you, Pete. Okay.